Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. All right, guys. I feel like I was almost inappropriately excited to teach about teaching, if I'm really honest, just confessing. Uh, Yeah, so as Brian said, I'm an elder pastor here. I guess in some sense I'm a teaching pastor. We don't really use some of that language around here, but it's very obvious. In another life, I would have ended up a professor and biomedical researcher instead of a pastor. I kind of accidentally became a pastor, I guess, almost reluctantly over the last five years. And uh, thanks, Justin. And I think preparing this message this week, I was just struck with a level of actual sobriety and reverence for the role of leadership in any position or vocation in our culture, but especially in a church community. And the power of words, the power of public teaching, the power of these things to shape our values, our decisions, and our very lives. And that's something that I know I take and others who serve in leadership roles, whether it's a house church or, or leading worship or teaching and preaching, take very seriously. That people would come and actually gather and entrust you know, their time and resources to us. So I come with a lot of reverence and humility today. My... My wife is gone. I, always, I feel like I, lately I've been giving caveats and warnings before I start talking. <laughs> but maybe it's my new pattern. My wife's been gone for the last three days. Uh, there's a theme developing. The last time I taught, she was also gone for three days. And when she leaves, I go into hyper Dave mode. And I get spreadsheets and to-do lists. And I work 16 hours a day. And it's probably not healthy, but I only have 72 hours. So why not? So that's my first caveat. My second caveat is asking someone who's naturally by temperament, typology, a teacher to teach about teaching. That's just a recipe for chaos. So I thought that I would, in in the spirit of that, I was reminded of one of my favorite books by Mortimer Adler. This is How to Read a Book book. And in this, Adler talks about the four different approaches to reading and the four different ways that you could be reading his book while you read about those four different ways. So I was very tempting to turn this whole message into pedagogy and academic theory about the art of teaching. And I, we could do that another time. If that excites you, we could get coffee. <laughs> that is not what today's going to be. We are going to get a little nerdy. We are going to do some... <laughs> pedagogies the study of education, so educational theory. Yeah. So we will, we, will not, we will not be doing that today. If you want to talk about pedagogy, I would love to, and we could get coffee. Instead, the guide, here's kind of my guiding question that I was reflecting on as I prepped. What does it mean for Jesus to teach from and with authority? for the purpose of gaining wisdom. So these two concepts of authority and wisdom. And I want us to try and step into today, I'm going to be pushing us to develop a biblical imagination, to renew our minds in the way that Jesus understood the role of words, the power of words to create worlds, 
and the power of words to shape lives, choices, decisions. And how Jesus was able to speak with such authority and yet still be so open and inclusive and loving. And I sense, this could just be me, but I sense that that's a tension many of us wrestle with in the modern age, right? This tendency for humans, and what I'm about to say, I'm not making a political statement. I'm not making even an academic statement. I'm talking about within our own human hearts, we have these natural tendencies to lean towards a more liberal approach to authority. And by that, in the, in the context of Christianity, that's a more liberal approach to Scripture. The Scriptures are just literature, and there's some wise stuff in them, but I wouldn't really redirect my life or submit myself to this story. I might just glean a little wisdom from it. Or even to God's authority, right? A more liberal view. And then on the other end of the spectrum is a more what we might call fundamentalism, a more narrow view of authority, where things are black and white, and then the scriptures become this source text for truth, and it's just, you just find the verse, and it's, Jesus said it, I believe it, done. Which can lead to a narrow-mindedness that makes it sometimes difficult to even have real relationship with other human beings who might happen to have different views than us, right? And I would suggest that all of us are probably naturally wired to err into one of those two ditches of kind of unbridled liberalism where I'm my own authority and I kind of get to pick and choose and create my own system. Or kind of this naive biblicism where the Bible's just clear and it's obvious and it's black and white and there's, there's no other viewpoints. If you don't have my view, you're an idiot. And I think that that propensity is within each of us. And yet Jesus is able to hold together this radical level of submission and authority and yet be so open and inclusive and loving. How does he do that? So that's the question I'm reflecting on as as I lead us through this lecture. (laughs) So Rabbi Jesus, he's a different kind of teacher. In all the Gospels, the most frequent title attributed to Jesus is teacher. And that can be in the Hebrew, Rabbi, Rabboni, or it could be the Greek, Didiaskoni, I forget the exact word. Right? But Jesus is primarily comes to us in human form as a teacher. And a couple stories that come to mind, there's like the scene in John 3 where Nicodemus, who's a religious leader, comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want anyone to see. And he comes to him and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're an authoritative teacher sent by God. And there's another story in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has this beautiful distillation of the kingdom of God. Matthew 5-7. through And at the end of chapter 7, it says that when he finished speaking, the crowds were amazed because he spoke with authority unlike the other religious teachers that they were used to listening to. Jesus is a teacher who speaks from authority and with authority for the purpose of wisdom, cultivating wisdom in us. And 
in the modern age, that's very different because teaching, the purpose of teaching is to disseminate a set of specialized ideas to a group of people so that they can become, I don't know, upstanding citizens or depending on your view of traditional academics, factory workers. That's a whole other conversation we could have about pedagogy. But what, what is Jesus doing? What's his goal, his telos as a teacher? What's he trying to form in us when he teaches us, when we read the scriptures? Or when we come to a church worship gathering to hear teaching, what is the outcome and goal of public teaching in the church? So, a little context. Have you guys ever thought about, in the New Testament, there's all these rabbis, right? Jewish rabbis. Jesus is a rabbi just means teacher. But in the Old Testament, we never really hear about rabbis. Where did rabbis come from? So a little history of Israel. They're exiled by these big ancient empires, Assyrians, the Babylonians, and they conquer their cities, and they break up families, and they scatter them into different regions. And so you have these diaspora communities, much like exists all around the world today. You have these people who are culturally Jewish, and now they're living in Italy, in this small village where they got forced to go. So how do you retain culture and worldview when you are separate from the temple, if you're a Jew? Because you're separated from the practices, the rituals, the reality of your faith. You are now geographically separated from it. You need teachers or rabbis to help cultivate in you a worldview that is different than the culture you're living in. A writer, Alan Hirsch, says, the purpose of a rabbi is to cultivate a distinct worldview in a hostile context. A context that has competing worldviews. And I don't really like the word worldview because it kind of implies that we are not participants, that we're sitting back observing the world as it goes by. I like to think about it as a worldview is more of an interpretive imagination. It's, your, it's the way that you interpret the world and your experiences, the events that happen. It's how you make meaning out of your life. So, a good teacher, rabbi style, the goal is to cultivate a distinct biblical imagination in your mind, heart, body, and soul. That's what Jesus is after. He's after formation above information. Jesus never went to university. As far as I know, the only real book he ever read was half of our Bible, the Old Testament. And from this prophetic literature and these historical books, he cultivated this... Oh, didn't start the timer, sorry. Freebie, free, free five minutes. From these Old Testament scriptures, he's so saturated. He'd probably memorize the majority of the Old Testament. His imagination, his interpretive framework for the world is saturated in this prophetic literature of the people of Israel. So how, how do we, in the modern day, how do you cultivate this imagination, this interpretive imagination, this worldview? Well, I'd argue there's, this is a little simplistic and we could go off on a lot of bunny trails. There's three primary components that shape your view of the world, how you see yourself, how you see others. You have a community of people who engage in shared practices and they're centered around a unifying story. 
And this is not just a Christian thing, this is a sociological thing that people have studied and observed. Worldviews are formed as people gather, participate in shared practices, and it's all orienting them towards a shared story. People practices stories. And we see this in the people of Israel. And in, in many ways, what is a church? A church is a gathering of disciples who commit to a set of practices together and share in public teaching, whether that's in a large group gathering like this or in the home where you're all sharing and teaching each other, more Socratic style in the house church. Right? So to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, is to be thrown into this world of words. To be a Christian is to be linguistic, right? And there's a fluency that takes time in the process of discipleship as Jesus is rewiring our imagination, our interpretive framework for the world. So, the power of words. I mean, this is almost so obvious we don't think about it. The scriptures themselves, this library of 66 books spanning authors across 1,500 years, different cultures, different contexts, it's, it's words. We are centered, the church is centered around these words, the story. And there's all types of different literature, different genres. And within these words, even the Bible itself testifies to the preeminence and power of words. Genesis 1 opens, the first act of all creation, God said, let there be light. And we could, again, we could nerd out and talk about, well... How does God speak if there's no matter for his voice to propagate through? There can't even be sound, right? We could get all nerdy and physics-y on that. That's a whole mind-blowing thing. But the first act of all creation that God does is he speaks, which says as much about who God is as about us as humans and the role that speech plays in creating reality. And we go on, we hear it in, in the psalm, Psalm 19, I'll paraphrase, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun, the moon, the stars, they pour forth speech. And though a sound does not go out from them, their voice is heard among the nations. This idea that reality itself is speaking of a deeper, greater reality to us. And we could go on through the historical books of the Old Testament, the storytellers of our faith tradition, The prophetic literature, those who are actually hearing the divine words of God and speaking either judgment or hope to the people of Israel. And then we have the wisdom literature, which is kind of what we're diving into today. The Proverbs, the book of Job, right? And then we get to the New Testament, and it's even more explicit. John 1, the word was made flesh. And Christ comes to us as God incarnate, and it's a new creation. Creation number one starts with speech. Creation number two starts with speech as well. It's new creation. And Jesus' brother, James, writes later in his letter, I think it's James 3. Have you guys read this? James James is just a straight shooter. I think we could all do well to just read the book of James every now and again. James 3, he goes off talking about the power of the tongue that life and death are contained within the tongue, and it's like a spark that starts a huge fire and burns the whole forest down, or it's like a rudder that steers the ship. And then he goes on, and he basically discourages people from teaching publicly because you're going to be judged harsher. Whatever we think of that, 
It speaks to the seriousness of words and the power they contain to create worlds, to create meaning, for better or for ill. And Paul, I think, also understands this. This will kind of be like the departure verse for today. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 to 17, but I'm just going to read the second half. So an elderly Paul is writing to a young, his protege, Timothy, that he's raising up as a leader. And the first part, he talks about how Timothy knows his life. He's seen his suffering. He's seen his integrity, his character in moments of pressure and trial. And then he says this in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Pause. So Paul is continually arguing and combating against false teaching and against gossip. These are two of his biggest things that he's going after. Both speech acts. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Paul's saying, you know my life. You know that what I said came from a place of authority, that I lived this. It's not empty words. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able, the purpose of the scriptures, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The same every good work that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4, that the graces of leadership of the apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, teaching, and shepherding exist for. Right? That's the goal. The goals that were being raised up in maturity for works of service in the world. Acts of love. Okay. So there's two things I want us to reflect on, which was what I started with. This idea of authority and wisdom. How does authority function? What is authority? What's your authority? What's my authority? And what is wisdom? Why should we want it? And how do we get it? That's where I'm going to take us. That first question is more for you. I mean, it's for me too. It's for all of us. But as, as I'm sharing, I want you to reflect on this idea of what functions as the authority in your life. And I, I don't mean existentially in the big picture. I mean like right now in this season of your life, what is operating under the surface as your authority? What are the voices, the stories... Sociologists call this a constitutive narrative. It's, it's a narrative that you've adopted as your, that guides your worldview. What is functioning as your authority in this season of your life? And then the second question, which we'll talk about, is what on earth is wisdom and how do we get it? Authority and wisdom. Okay. Pause. This is, this is an interlude. We're going to do... This is why I was getting so excited. We're going to do a little science experiment. I need two volunteers. Yes, I knew Mo was going to come. Mo, I need you to have your phone. You're going to be our timer. Matthew. So, I have set up here a little experiment. Um, That's fine. No, it's fine. You can see. All right. So, a little here. You can sit here with your back to everyone. Mo's going to have a timer. So let me give a little context. So in 2015, a bunch of researchers funded by the uh, BBC in the UK were doing some social experiments around the role of language 
and how it shapes our perceptions. And they traveled to an African nation called Namibia to study this specific people group called the Himbas. And the Himbas are unique for all kinds of reasons. I won't get into it. But they conducted this experiment, which you're all going to watch us conduct the same exact experiment with Matthew right now. So this is so simple, a a three-year-old could do it. They brought these people into a tent, and they had a computer screen set up with images on it, and images of shapes that are with different colors. And so Matthew, as my guinea pig, uh, Mo, you have your timer ready? Do a stopwatch. Stopwatch. Okay. So Matthew, here's the simple question. Can you point to the square that is a different color? Yes. Good job. Okay. How long did it take? Well, I mean, with his motion, it's three seconds. Three seconds. Okay. Okay. Same question, Matthew. Can you point to the square that's a different color over here? Okay, no, that one's, that's not it, but that's Dang it. Good. All right, all right, that's good. How long, how long, where are we at? 16 seconds. Okay, 16 seconds. And he still hasn't been able to identify it. Okay, you guys can sit down. You can, you can return if you want. Okay, so let me explain this a little and what they hypothesize is going on. So the answer is this green right here is a different shade. And when they did this experiment with the Himba people, the results were reversed. So they set before them this set of squares, and they said, tell us which one's different. And within seconds, the Himba people would point and touch it. And then they would be presented with this same set of squares, which this one that is like, it's like waving at you, like, high five, I'm blue, right? It's so obvious. And it would take them minutes, and some people... Some participants could never identify which one was different. And I'm not, this is the exact image. I downloaded it from the researcher's website. This is the exact image they're shown, and they can't, they can't see it. Just like we can't see that one. And so their best hypothesis of what's going on is that our brains are centered around these linguistic centers. And so there's a reality out there in the world that we perceive through our senses, and it travels through our neurons, and our neurons get to some point down the chain, and they go, ah, where do we put this? It's called interpretation or perception. And language helps provide the recycling bin categories to organize what you perceive, your experiences. And so if you have a different linguistic structure, so the the Himba people only have five words for color. Vapa, Sarandu, Dumbu, Boru, and Zuzu. And if you look at this chart, if you want to get real nerdy, you can come up after, you see that green and blue, certain tones of green and blue, fall under the same classification of color. Here's a simpler, this one's simpler. Green and blue, Buru. Yet they have different distinct categories for different shades of green. Okay. 
Thanks for entertaining me. Why on earth is that relevant at all? Well, we need to do a little bit of philosophy and a little bit of biblical philosophy. But I, I would suggest if language, even if that hypothesis is 60% true, if language plays that fundamental a role, I mean, what could be more objectively real than color? I mean, I studied physics and was a researcher in the field of optics, and blue is blue. 450 nanometers is the median wavelength of blue. 550 nanometers is the medium wavelength of green. 100 nanometers, that's a big difference in the EM spectrum. It could not be more objective. Color's not subjective. It's not like art. Mm, I like that one. I don't. Color is color. It's as objective and real as anything, as, as matter, as gravity, right? Yet humans perceive it different. The power of language, not just to create worlds, but to give us access to see. To see things that we couldn't see without those words. So this leads us into this question of how do we become wise like Jesus intends for us? How do we become people of wisdom who teach from and with authority? Well, a little more nerdy philosophy. Some of you might have taken a high school philosophy class or a college philosophy class. I am by no means a philosopher. I'm a peddler at best. But I understand some things, and I've pieced together some things. There are three basic branches of philosophy. Metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Metaphysics is the study of what is. It's reality. This is where we get what I studied, physics. It's the physical world, the objective world, the reality that is. You could think of this like the terrain, a little metaphor. Epistemology comes from the Greek, episteme means knowledge or gnosis, or, and it is the study of how these creatures, how humans map that reality or come to know that reality. How does knowledge work? How does it go from being out there to in here to I understand? So we'd call this, this is the map of the terrain. So we have the terrain, we have the map, and then ethics is what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? What are you going to choose? What is good? What is bad? What's valuable? What's invaluable? What is good? What's evil? Right? Wrong. So we could call this your compass. How do you navigate the moral choices of life? And a big problem that philosophers claim emerged around the time Immanuel Kant, a couple hundred years ago, in Western philosophy, is people started to realize what this experiment kind of suggests, that reality as it is is not always the reality as we think it is. That there is potentially a little bit of a Grand Canyon gulf between our metaphysics and our knowledge, our epistemology, which creates a little bit of a problem. It's my best friend losing his faith, claiming ag agnosticism, because it's not that he doesn't believe in God, he just doesn't believe we can even know, because the gap's too big. 
And so he just kind of waves the white flag and says, I just I can't believe this. I don't trust this authority anymore. And we see this kind of contradiction in our society, in our culture, where there's these dueling, kind of contradicting philosophies at work. When it comes to big things like faith, religion, big beliefs, the transcendent, we are very, as modern Americans, Westerners, we're very skeptical about our ability to really know anything. And then when it comes to everyday life, science, technology, we are very confident that we know everything. So when it comes to imminence, we are like, oh yeah, we got data for that, we got charts, graphs, we got studies, we know it. And when it comes to the big, we're like, anyone's guess, I don't know. Your truth, your truth, my truth, my truth. And I think even this last year, with a pandemic and all this stuff, has revealed that actually we're, we're less confident in both areas than maybe we thought. Things are less obvious sometimes than we think. So why is this helpful? Well, I promise it is. Let's transition here to Jewish philosophy. And let's think about the interpretive imagination of Jesus and what Jesus thinks the goal of teaching is. Because the goal of teaching in the modern world is to build knowledge, right? But Jesus' goal is different. It's wisdom. So if we go back, kind of the, the starting point for wisdom literature is the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And the book of Proverbs in various places, in various ways, basically communicates that you should seek and desire wisdom above all else. Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom is chokmah in the Hebrew. Everyone say it. Chokmah. Chokmah. It sounds like it's from like Mulan or something. Chokmah. So chokmah is translated as wisdom, which we translate as moderns as knowledge, which then translates as information exchange. In a Jewish mind, chokmah, the first people who are said to have chokmah in the Old Testament are the artisans and craftsmen who make the tabernacle and the temple. It's the kings of old who exert chokmah as they make these tough decisions. Wisdom, chokmah, is less about information and more about the good life, how to live well. It's about skills, decisions, choices, and action. And what we see is that in a Jewish philosophy, chokmah, these three things... They're inseparable. We are embodied creatures that live in the real world. And then, yes, we have our experiences and we gain knowledge. But then, guess what? With that knowledge, we have to make choices. We can't separate these things. There is no big gap for a Jewish imagination of how knowledge works. It's all interconnected. <laughs> and you, it will go well with you if you have a good map of the terrain by which to navigate and make choices with. If you have a bad map, anyone seen that episode of The Office where Michael and Dwight are driving with the GPS and it like sends them into the pond and the whole time Dwight's like, Michael, no! And Michael just keeps screaming, the machine knows, the machine knows! <laughs> and it's a beautiful metaphor for our lives sometimes. Because we make poor choices based on bad maps of the reality. So how do we become wise? Where does wisdom start? 
Proverbs answers that too. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, which is not exactly the most popular, sexy sermon title or book title these days. But we need, I am increasingly convinced that this is maybe the most important concept for us modern Westerners to get. We have to understand this. We have to understand the fear of the Lord. It has everything to do with authority and wisdom. So how do we become wise? We embrace the fear of the Lord. Well, what on earth is the fear of the Lord? I could teach for hours. I'm going to give you like a five-minute version. Although I think these categories are somewhat artificial, because as humans, (laughs) they're all mixed in together, I think the, the fear of the Lord belongs in this category of metaphysics. The fear of the Lord, I'll say this a bunch of times, is more of a reality to recognize than a command to follow. The fear of the Lord is a reality to recognize, not a command to follow. Nowhere in Scripture does God come on the scene and say, I quote, fear me. The alternative is how this has emerged in wisdom literature is human beings have these crazy experiences with God, whether it's a burning bush or it's an angelic encounter or it's some other crazy theophany where the divine transcendent becomes imminent in real life in the physical. And what do humans always do when they encounter God in one of those ways? They fall on the ground, and usually there's some trembling and shaking involved. And here's the beautiful part. What does God always say, or the angel always say? What's the first thing? Fear not. So the fear of the Lord has everything to do with the nature of God, the metaphysical reality. Soren Kierkegaard, famous Danish philosopher, talks about it as the infinite qualitative difference between God and humanity. The gulf of the substantive difference between God and reality. Little illustration to make it, bring it to home. I used to live on the Big Island of Hawaii with Seo and a few other people in the room. And Hawaii has one of the only active volcanoes in the world. Down on the South Island of the Big Island, it's a national park, it's awesome. And if you're really lucky and you go there at a certain time, you can go like roast a marshmallow on some lava as it flows out into the ocean and it's cool. Super fun. You should do it. Very touristy, but you should do it. We are living there, and some guests are visiting, and we want to show them a good Hawaii adventure. So we come up with this plan. We've heard rumors of this. We've never done it. But at the center of Volcanoes National Park is a cauldron of lava. And when I say cauldron, I don't mean like little witch's cauldron. I mean like mile-high stadium size, hole in the ground, filled going down to the Earth's core with magma, liquid hot magma. And we think, wow, what a memorable experience to sneak into the park after hours and hike out to the edge of the cauldron and Frodo-style throw rocks into the lava and watch it melt. And it's illegal. (laughs) Because normally when you pay and go to the park, you get to go to this visitor center up on a cliff, and from two miles away you put a quarter in some binoculars and you go... Ooh, the cauldron. And it's about this big. And we wanted to hike up to the edge of this cauldron. So we're 
you know, young millennials in our 20s were carefree, lackadaisical, so midnight we drive the 90 miles down to the park and we sneak through the forest a couple miles and we're just having a good old time. Laughing, chumming it up, jovial. And I'll never forget the moment we stepped out of the jungle onto the actual lava field, and then it's about a quarter mile walk up to the edge of the cauldron. Everyone went silent. And at that moment, we all realized, holy crap, we're hiking up to a volcano that could kill us. And we step out of the forest, we all go silent, and I remember looking at the ground and feeling it in my feet, just these little micro tremors. The ground's just shaking. And all of a sudden, I felt very afraid. And we proceeded to walk slowly past boulders the size of minivans, which got there because the volcano exploded and shot them a mile into the sky, and then they landed on the lava field. And we're just walking past, like touching these boulders that used to be down in the Earth's core. And we get up to the edge, and I kid you not, I've never felt so afraid in my life. The volcano didn't have, they didn't, they didn't have to put a sign there saying, volcano, be afraid. <laughs> I was very aware that in the flash of a second, if I stumbled into this lava, I'm done. I was so aware of my frailty. I was so aware of the infinite qualitative difference between the lava cauldron and my 160 pounds of frail flesh. That's, that's how the fear of the Lord functions. Can't conjure it up. And the writers of Scripture tell us that it is wise and will, it, life will go well with you if you acknowledge this foundational starting point of reality. It's like sleeping eight hours a night or acknowledging gravity when you're on a high place. God's not commanding it for the sake of obedience to, to test you. It's a reality of the cosmos. And if you don't recognize it, you have a bad map from baseline. Your map, like, it's just, it's like the old maps of California that used to say it was an island. Do you guys know about this? This one guy, this one cartographer made a map of California having it as an island, and then for like 150 years, people thought California was an island. Even though you could walk from New Mexico to California, somehow people didn't realize because they had a bad map. Makes navigating really hard. What am I getting at? We could talk about that a lot more. But how does this help? How does the fear of God set us on a trajectory of wisdom that helps us avoid these two ditches of liberalism and fundamentalism in our own hearts, not the cultural phenomenon, in our own hearts? How do we live as people under deep authority of Jesus and with that deep assurance that comes with our faith, yet remain open-minded, tender, loving towards others? How do we hold these in tension? So the fear of the Lord, it's not a command to follow, but a reality to recognize. A couple weeks ago, I, I talked about Paul on the road to Damascus. And I talked about a cultural idea of Christianity that's really common in the West, that Christianity is a set of beliefs and doctrines that if you just tick the boxes and believe the right ones, then you go to heaven instead of hell. 
it's this cognitive exchange where, oh, I guess, yeah, that's plausible. Okay, I'll believe them. And now you get a ticket and you don't go to this bad place, you go to this good place. That's cultural Christianity. Which the problem with that is you're still at the center and you're believing these things to save yourself. Which is not the Christianity of the New Testament at all. The Christianity of the New Testament looks more like the Apostle Paul who was killing Christians, riding on a donkey or a horse to some town to go persecute some Christians. And then he has an encounter with the risen Christ, he gets knocked off his donkey, blinded, and he encountered God. Christianity is a reality that we get caught up into and have to choose how to respond to, much more than just a sterile set of beliefs that we assent to in our minds. It's a reality that possesses us. It's a new map. It's like your map gets downloaded from the cloud, and then you don't drive into the pond anymore. So that's the assurance part. The fear of the Lord provides a steady starting point for our maps to have a deep assurance in Christ. The reality of Christ risen and his possessing us as his followers. And then the corollary of the fear of the Lord, of recognizing God's infinite qualitative difference, is recognizing our infinite qualitative difference too. So just like the fear of the Lord is a reality to recognize, not a command to follow, humility is a reality to embrace, not a virtue that we need to pump up. We don't need to try hard and be more humble. Humility is the natural response to recognizing the fear of God. It's Philippians 2, Paul saying, don't consider yourself better than others. Value others above yourself. And then he goes on, for that famous poem about the incarnation and Christ not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but coming and dwelling among us and dying as a criminal, right? So humility and authority go together. Earlier, I asked us that question of what's, what's your constitutive narrative? What's the, said more elegantly, What are you giving authority in your life? Whose words? What story is functioning as the guiding narrative to which you give that authority? Probably a more direct question. This is a leading question, just warning you. When I have moments of difficulty or I don't know, sometimes you just have days or weeks or whole seasons where you just feel kind of foggy. You just feel like, what am I even doing? Why am I in this job? Why am you feel stressed. You feel, you feel all the feels. A question I like to ask myself, and I'll offer it to you, it's a little direct, is when was the last time I dropped on my knees in worship or prayer? It's like a really good Littman's test for me. And sometimes I ask that question, and I couldn't even tell you. Can't even remember. And I don't mean in the religious, ritualistic way of, well, every morning I get on my knees and I bow on my bed, and not saying that's bad. But I mean, no, you are responding to a perceived reality, and you can't help but just go, oh my gosh. Whether it's God's holiness or whether it's his I mean, I felt like doing it this morning. They're singing about the goodness, and I'm thinking about all the seasons where 
I've been so bad and he's been so good in spite of it. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just, I just feel weak and I just want to crumble. When was the last time you were on your knees before your God? And that's not a pressure thing. There's no shame in that. It's for your sake. It's chokmah. Your life will go better if we live our lives with that fundamental posture of recognizing His authority and our frailty. It'll make us more tender, more gentle, more loving, more patient, more kind, more open. Yet at the same time, wildly resilient and confident and assured in our Lord and what He's done. And we don't even need to have all the answers. It helps us navigate that gap between those ditches. Thankfully, the biblical imagination does not portray the world as the philosophers see it because reality is not a cold, sterile, neutral place of just energy and matter. In a biblical imagination, in a prophetic imagination, reality is fundamentally a triune God in relationship of love for all eternity. And this metaphysical reality is not just sitting over there across this chasm we can't cross. It's wildly, actively trying to reveal itself to us. It's not on us to figure out our epistemological, hermeneutical, interpretive lens and get it right. God is actively bridging the gap from the stories of the Old Testament of this this God coming and accommodating a bunch of pagan moon worshipers in some nowhere part of the world and walking with this people Israel through their sin and their brokenness and stooping and accommodating to them and then coming ultimately in Christ in the incarnation he's wildly actively crossing the ditch for us this is why Jesus is hokmah embodied he's the way he's the bridge He is why we can have confidence that when we meet Him, we meet reality itself. He comes to us. We don't have to go to Him. We're not alone. And again, because it's Him who's doing the coming, I think that's why we can hold this tension and bridge this gap of holding on to deep, a deep sense of authority for God, for the scriptures that have been passed down by our ancestors who also were trying to follow this way. We can hold a deep place of authority for those things and submission to those things and yet hold it loosely and joyfully and lightly because we don't have to have all the answers. We didn't cross the gap. We didn't get it all right. So in closing, I'm just going to say a quick prayer and blessing over us. Father, we just acknowledge our, our need as humans. We just acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge our need for one another. We just acknowledge the reality that we're not even capable of figuring all these things out sometimes. We're not even capable of having a perfect map. And we thank you that you're so faithful. 
to come to us. We're so thankful that you're so faithful to reveal aspects of reality that we so desperately need to see. Truths about ourselves, truths about the dignity, value of other people, truths about who you are, things that we could never know or never come up with on our own. And so I just pray that over our community and anyone listening. I just pray that spirit that Paul prayed for, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray that you would make us people grounded in a sense of assurance in your authority. And I pray that you'd keep us so humble and tender and gentle and loving towards others as we steward that authority. That we would not hold it boastfully. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.